Well, good morning. Not only to those of you here in person, uh, but also to those of you who are online with us as well. Uh, as Bill mentioned, my name is Gus, and yes, I serve as a member here at Fellowship. I'm one of you. And as we continue through John's gospel today, if you've been with us, you know we've been going uh, and we've made it to Passion Week. We've made it to the Holy Week. Uh, as, as Mark mentioned, there's 21 chapters in the book of John, and the first 11 chapters cover the, the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry here on earth, and the last 10 cover just this one week. But this morning, as we, as we dig into God's word, we're going to look at a familiar text, John chapter 13. So if you've missed either of the last two weeks, uh, I highly recommend going back and catching those on the Fellowship Nashville YouTube page or our podcast, uh, which sounds so weird for me to say that, um, but do it. They're great. Uh, Mark did a really great job of setting the scene for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with people all over coming for the Passover feast, and they welcomed Jesus in as this conquering king because that's what they've expected. They welcomed him almost as if he's a warrior returning from battle, victorious. And yet, as Jesus reveals himself to the people, he reveals that he's a different kind of king, one who hasn't even gone into battle yet. And the shouts of Hosanna are quickly going to be turning to shouts of crucify him. Now this morning, as we get started, I want you to think about something with me for just a moment. I work in the software industry, and my company does like engagement surveys, like tell us how you feel about the company, tell us how you feel about leadership, things like that. And we're given an opportunity to, to rate our company, rate what we think of our leaders, of our company, all of that. And when you think of great leaders, you probably think of names like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, maybe Jeff Bezos if you're an Amazon fan, or if you're like me and a history fan, you think about names like Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, folks who exemplified going through difficult scenarios and leading well. You can look at their successes and trace them uh, to characteristics and traits that set them apart from their competitors, from their rivals, from their enemies. And when we think of those, what are the words that you think of? Maybe you think of words like visionary. Maybe you think of words like courageous, charismatic, Maybe depending on the type of leader they are, maybe even things like ruthless and cunning, driven. And those aren't bad words to describe great leaders because a lot of those characteristics are absolutely necessary to lead. But over the last few decades, and especially during the last few years, one word has come up more and more when describing what employees and followers are looking for in a great leader, and it's the word humility. It's a word that's being used by the world around us, not just inside the church, but outside of it. People want a humble leader. This word describes those who get the most out of their teams, they keep their teams together longer, and they generally succeed at things most of us would likely never have the work ethic or courage to tackle. Humility is a word that in a world that prides itself on encouraging others to be themselves, it's a character trait that is others-focused. A humble leader gets the most out of others. A humble gets the most out of his team, not just himself. And in today's text, Jesus is going to show us, not just tell us what humility looks like. And we'll be commanded as his disciples to be humble ourselves. So we'll look at three ideas this morning, two of which are comforting truths about God that we can trust, and the other is a command for us to carry out. 
So if you're like me and you, you like Mark's buckets or you like ideas, things like that, two comforting truths, one command, and we'll also have three takeaways as well. But before we get started, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of body of believers at Fellowship Nashville, both here in person and online. I thank you for their commitment to you, for their commitment to your word, and their commitment to carry the gospel wherever you've commanded us. I feel so inadequate to preach this text this morning because, <laughs> because I am so unlike Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you speak through me. I ask that you open the hearts and the minds of the people here. I ask that you be bold, that you be powerful in this room today. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would, please stand with me as we read together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and and put on his outer garments, he, returned, he resumed his place. And he said to him, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Now, I told you guys you have two comforting truths about God and one command. We're going to go ahead. I'm going to show you guys the first comforting truth, and that is this. This is the plan of God. Everything that is about to take place tonight, everything that is about to take place in the coming days is all a part of God's plan, and I want us to see that. So let's quickly set the scene, okay? Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, we've, we've arrived uh, at what is commonly known as the Last Supper, Jesus uh, has gathered his disciples for a final meal together. He's going to teach them. He's going to explain to them what's coming. And, and in their accounts of the Last Supper, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to focus on the meal itself. Uh, it's where we get the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we partook last week. But notice, though, John doesn't actually focus on the meal itself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but John doesn't. He opens the dinner for us this way. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I had, I had that emboldened. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, This tells us that what's about to happen isn't a surprise to Jesus. This isn't some shock thing. He doesn't know what's going on. He absolutely knows what's going on. And the beautiful thing about that is that it isn't causing Jesus to back away one single inch. You know, Mark last week, he he kind of, he talked about how Jesus was in anguish because he was waiting for the hour to come and how the hour has come. And in this moment, Jesus is going straight for it. He's running headstrong into what's coming. And again, as Mark mentioned last week, in order for there to be resurrection, you have to first go through the crucifixion. Remember what John records for us just a few chapters earlier. We looked at this in John chapter 10 a few weeks ago. Verse 17 and 18, John says this for us. For this reason, he's talking, he's writing Jesus' words. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This isn't some random chance set of events that's happening. This is the plan of God to rescue and redeem sinners from the pit of hell for his glory and for our good. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, everything that's happening is for God's glory and your good. This is not some random thing. This is the purposeful plan of God to redeem us. Now, John has used this hour time theme throughout his gospel. We've seen this throughout. There are plenty of moments where events take place and people believe based on what Jesus has just done, where the Pharisees are plotting to trap Jesus. They're plotting to kill Jesus. And we see John saying that things did happen or didn't happen because Jesus' time or his hour had not yet come. We see that repeatedly. John chapter 2, verse 4 at the wedding. John chapter 7, verse 6. John chapter 8, verse 20. We see all these things did or did not happen because Jesus' hour had not yet come. And there were and there will be other times that we've explored or will explore in the coming weeks and months where, where events take place and people believe based on what Jesus has just done or just said where the Pharisees plot to trap Jesus, plot to kill Jesus. And we see John saying that things did happen because Jesus' hour had come. Mark mentioned these just a few weeks ago. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 27. John 13, chapter 1, where we are today. John chapter 16, verse 32, and John chapter 17, verse 1. This is not random. Jesus knows what's going to happen because he's in on it. This is not some fluke thing. This is the purposeful plan of God. And this is what John has been laying out throughout his gospel, that this is the plan of God. And and John's not the only one in scripture that does this. Paul does this as well in his letters. Notice Galatians chapter four. What does Paul say? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He also says in Ephesians chapter one, which is to me one of the greatest books in all of the Bible. As someone who's been adopted, I love this. 
Starting in verse three, Paul writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That is good news, which he lavished upon us. That's good news. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, not ours, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is not random. This is the purposeful plan of God to redeem you and me. And that's a beautiful, beautiful truth. You being in Christ is the plan of God. You being in Christ is the work of God to save you and me. Now let's go back to John and let's go back to verse one because John is not done encouraging us. Listen to what John goes on to tell his readers. Go back to verse one, he says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What beautiful words there. Having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now, in studying for this, you get a lot of different ideas and you get a lot of different debates about what's actually meant by that phrase, love them to the end. Some say it refers to this complete and utter devotion, like a husband would have for his wife. I get that. Others say it's actually referring to Jesus loving them to the end of his life. Don't disagree with that either. Either way, what this is showing us is the extent of God's love for his own, his disciples, his bride, the church, us, we who are gathered here this morning. This is 100% all in complete love, total love for a people. That's just how Jesus does things with complete devotion, finishing what he starts. And I would tell you this morning, that is a glorious truth and comfort to those of us who do follow Jesus. And I would also say it's a beautiful open door and invitation for those who are trying to figure out where they stand with Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with Jesus. I can tell you, you will not find any sort of love here on earth that will give you 100% all in complete and total devotion like Jesus will. This Jesus who was completely devoted to his own back then is completely devoted to anyone who will receive him as king. And that's good news, brothers and sisters. And when I think of this, outside of my wife, whom I do count as just a tremendous grace in my life, probably my sister-in-law, Jill, is probably the closest person I can think of to this example. She's probably the most thoughtful person I know. If she sees something you're passionate about, if she sees something you deeply desire, she will go out of her way to learn more about why you do. She's not in it just to say, hey, I want to get you this. She wants to know why. She wants to know genuinely how she can support you, how she can encourage you as you walk through trials, how she can celebrate you in successes. 
Not so you'll think she's awesome, though she is. And Jill, if you watch this on the live stream, you're absolutely awesome. She does it just because you matter to her. And you matter to her just because you're created in God's image and you're worthy of being known, loved, and valued simply for that. That's the kind of love Jesus gives. So the first, the first idea, comforting truth, was that this was the plan of God. And here's your first takeaway this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you were not an afterthought to the king. This was purposeful. This was planned. You're not an afterthought. You're an adopted child of the king. He deeply loved you and deeply valued you so much that he would send Jesus to die for you. So that's takeaway number one. Comforting truth number two that we're going to look at this morning is the posture of God. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Notice starting in verse two, John kind of gives us a little more insight into what's happening here. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And oh, here comes Peter to respond. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will. And Peter said to him, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And you love Simon. You love Simon Peter. Lord, not only my feet only, but, but also my hands and my heads. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you were clean. Okay, now we're starting to see the action unfold in this room. John tells us that Jesus already knows who it is who will betray him. So again, remember the plan of God. This isn't random. He knows what's going on and he knows who's going to betray him. And he knows that the father had given all things into his hands. Now again, I love that because that means that Jesus lacked what? If he's got all things, what does he lack? Lee, I need it loud. Exactly. Nothing. Thank you, Lee. Audience participation at the max. He lacks nothing. And he also points out for us that Jesus knew he had come from God and was going back to God. So pointing us to the reality that Jesus is not just some happenstance kind of teacher. He is eternal. He is from God and he's going back. He's fully God and fully man. And all of this leads to the reality that ultimately Jesus is going to defeat Satan's scheme. This is great news and it's meant to be a comfort to us. Jesus has stacked the deck against Satan who doesn't even realize it. If ever someone was truly one step ahead of their opponent, this was it, okay? Now I'm, I'm an Alabama boy, but I'm an Auburn fan. Paul Fager, you're gonna love this. Brett, you're gonna love this. This is the only thing I could think of. Nick Saban is the only guy in the world I can think of who's always one step ahead of his, assist, his assistants and always beats them, okay? As, a, as an Auburn fan, I hate it with every fiber of my being. It hurt just to type those words out. But that's just how good of a coach he is. But Jesus, <laughs> for those of you on the live stream, someone amen from the back, and I think I know who it was. <laughs> but for those of you 
But for those of you who are seeing this, what you're seeing in this moment is Jesus playing chess while Satan's playing checkers. Again, the only thing I could think about here is Satan's trademark Cracker Barrel triple jump will help him think that he's defeated Satan or defeated Jesus. You know, does the little triple jump sitting in the rocking chair. It's way more violent than that, I know. And he thinks he's got Jesus beat. Only to realize that Jesus has been playing chess and Satan has just moved his piece right into checkmate. You know, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Now, I don't want us to focus so much on those things, although they're very important, especially the Cracker Barrel triple jump part. But before we go any farther, I'd like to refer to our good friend Luke, the good doctor, and his gospel for just a moment. Now, I want, I want you to note, just when you're reading the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, their gospels are considered synoptic, meaning they're very similar. They focus a lot of the same miracles. They focus on a lot of the same parables and events in Jesus' life and ministry. And John's gospel does focus on a lot of those too. But even as you can tell here, there's some differences into what he's saying, things that he focuses on more than they do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus more on the signs and saying of Jesus while John emphasizes Christ's identity. It's not just what he said, but who he was. But Luke gives us another little nugget that may help us understand where John is going into this account. Notice what Luke tells us in chapter 22, referring to the meal that's taking place. Starting in verse 24, he says this, a dispute also arose among them, the disciples, and you'll never guess why, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Sorry, kids. Your parents, they're older. They're an authority figure over you until you get out of their house. And as the leader, as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So even in this serious, somber moment, they're having one final meal with Jesus. They're having the Passover Seder meal. The disciples can't stop searching for and seeking their own satisfaction, security, and significance. They want to know, and they have their own thoughts about who is considered the greatest disciple. And can't you just see that moment? They're arguing, they're fighting, they're getting in a debate. And we all know that Peter can get a little hot-headed. Judas, he's doing his own thing. Other guys are doing their own thing as well, and they all have thoughts on this. Now come back to John's gospel with me. Jesus was the center of any room he stepped in with his disciples, so that makes the next interaction even more remarkable. And while John doesn't record the dispute about who will be the greatest, one can imagine that what happens next would freeze the disciples in the moment. Jesus gets up from the table, he takes off his outer garments, and he wraps a towel around himself. And he fills a basin with water and begins to wash their feet. Now, as Levi pointed out a few weeks ago, the roads in the cities weren't exactly littered with potholes like they are here in Nashville, as much as they were littered with the excrement from the uh, livestock traveling along them throughout the day. So the fact that Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples wasn't the shocking part. You see, in Jewish culture, the washing of someone's feet was typically done before a meal began. 
number one. So they're having the meal. So no one thought to wash anyone's feet. But the other thing to remember here is this. It was also not handled by a Jewish servant. This was usually revert, re, usually reserved for Gentile servants, anyone who was not Jewish. So in this moment, Jesus, who was Jewish, getting down to wash the feet of his disciples, shocks them, stops them in their tracks. You can just see their mouths wide open and no words coming out because they don't get what's happening. This was an act that was reserved for the Jew, uh, Gentile servants because, as several commentators pointed out, it was a humiliating act. And yet Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, the one who formed man out of dirt, was now kneeling at the feet of his very creation, cleaning the dirt off their feet. Imagine that for a moment. Peter's reaction to witnessing Jesus kneeling at his feet to wash them tells us he didn't think Jesus should be doing this. The Greek in the text is even stronger than what's written here. Lord, you, you, my feet, do you wash my feet? No, you shall never wash my feet until eternity. You shall never wash my feet. It's completely absurd to Peter from a social perspective. And if we're honest, it's probably crazy to us as well. We would never think that our master should wash our feet, but Jesus responds with a seriousness that should bring us off of our high horses and down onto our knees as well. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. There's this language there about having no share with Jesus. Language that would seem to indicate an inheritance that would, in their culture, go to the firstborn son. Now, Jesus saying this clearly triggers a response from Peter, who again, we love Peter because in one moment he can be absolutely insane, absolutely crazy and hot-headed. And in the next moment, his trademark exuberance declares, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. It's as if Peter is asking Jesus to throw him in the river, to dunk him completely under and not let him up until every ounce of him has been cleaned. It's almost like Peter wants Jesus to kind of waterboard him a little bit. Get down there. Don't let me out until every bit of dirt is off of me. I'm reminded of Psalm 103 where the psalmist tells us just how much God loves us in that moment. Verse 10, the psalmist writes, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, Jesus' love, God's love, is steadfast, it's resolute, it's committed and unchanging towards those who fear him and love him. We can't outdistance God's love from us. You can't do anything if you are in Christ to make him say, I am done with you. Think about that. And he removes our sins, our transgressions, as far away from us as the east is from the west. If you were to start walking east or west and you just kept walking, you'd be going in the same direction until you turn around. You could always be going west or you could always be going east and you would stay that way. That statement is of complete and utter forgiveness. Once our sins have been removed, we will never be held accountable for them. They will never come back to haunt us. And they're gone because Jesus was willing to bear the wrath that you and I deserved. 
to bring us into his family. That's the posture of God, to humble himself to make sinners saints. That's why when we look at Peter's response, it's so beautiful because he gets it. But when Jesus responds to him in verse 10, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. You know, I'm reminded of a remarkable account that happened on the afternoon of April 9th, 1865. Now, I'm a huge history nerd, so I love this. But two men, General Ulysses S. Grant and General Robert E. Lee, met inside a farmhouse in rural central Virginia. They were there to discuss the parameters to end a war that had been raging for several years. And Grant had previously messaged Lee. He, he reaffirmed the terms that he proposed from that previous letter. Lee knew he would not get a better offer than this, and to his disappointment, he agreed to the surrender and brought an end to the Civil War. Now, as, as General Lee began to ride away from that farmhouse, many of Grant's men who were there, they see what's happening, and they start cheering in celebration. And who could blame them, right? The war's over. But Grant did something remarkable. He ordered an immediate stop to that cheering. I at once sent word, however, to have it stopped, he later said. The Confederates were now our countrymen, and we did not want to exult over their downfall. Regardless of which side you fall on, in a moment when General Grant had every reason to gloat a monumental victory and celebrate the end of the war, he displayed a humility that many would say shouldn't have been afforded to his enemies. And I share that story to bring us back to one very important detail in this section. And if we're not careful, it's really easy for us to gloss over. Go back to verse 5 with me. Notice in verse 5, John tells us that Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. Notice John doesn't give us a listing of whose feet were washed. It simply says the disciples' feet. Plural. All of them. Even Judas. Can you imagine that? At this moment, Jesus knows Judas is going to be the one to betray him. He's getting down and washing Judas' feet right in front of him. He could have called Judas out in front of the other disciples. Hey guys, I'm only going to wash 11 sets of feet here. I'll let you determine who's going to betray me. And then when he gets there, whoops, bad news for Judas there. He could have said, I'll wash everyone's feet except for Judas. Jesus instead kneels at the feet of his betrayer and begins to wash his feet. And in that moment, offer Judas one more chance to repent and trust. That, folks, is divine humility. That is humility that can only come from Jesus. Only Jesus would be willing to lower himself to wash his enemy's feet. And that's precisely what he's doing here, and it's what he's doing for anyone here who hasn't yet surrendered to Christ as Lord. Jesus is giving you an invitation today to lay down your efforts to find security, satisfaction, or significance in anyone or anything other than Jesus. 
He is the only one who will satisfy, and he's giving you an opportunity to surrender, to lay down your proverbial arms and kneel at the feet of the king and worship him. Takeaway number two is this. Because, Jesus of post- because of Jesus' posture of humility in serving his enemies, foes can become family. So we've seen two comforting truths. We've seen that all of this was the plan of God. We've seen this is the posture of God. And now we see the command for us, the proclamation of God. Notice how Jesus goes on. When Jesus had washed their feet, starting in verse 12, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So he goes back to his his seat at the head of the table. He said to all of them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you do these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he's just finished washing their feet and he returns to his place around the table and he's affirming their belief in him being who he claimed to be. But now he's telling them that because of his humility in getting down to wash another's feet, they have a responsibility to do likewise to others. If the act isn't beneath the master, it's not beneath the servant. If it's, not belie- if it's not beneath Jesus to humble himself for all of us, it's not beneath us as his disciples either. It's a simple litmus test to see where we stand in the faith. It's a, it's a test to examine whether we're following the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus that we've crafted in our minds who's convenient and not challenging. And if we know that this is what Jesus commands and expects of his disciples... John tells us that Jesus said it will go well for us if we're obedient to him. James Hood, who was a black pastor and abolitionist in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, once said, how can it be hard work to serve those we love? It should be easy to love those we love, our families, our friends, fellow believers, our city groups. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus loving his enemies is the standard. It's the model. He loves his enemies so much that he's willing to make them family at such a great cost. That's humility. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who reminded us that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. You see, when you and I aren't focused on building our kingdoms, we have greater vision to see how God is advancing his kingdom and wants us to get in on that. So that leads me to the third takeaway this morning. Served people serve people. Served people serve people. If you and I have been served by the grace and mercy and love of Christ, we are called to display that to others. You may be asking yourself how this can happen practically in your world. Well, as the band makes their way back up, I'm going to give three examples as we close this morning. So as they come up, I'm going to give you these. Example number one, look at the people in your life, your family, your friends, coworkers, city group, maybe the person sitting next to you this morning. Find one thing you can encourage them in, celebrate them for, or pray for them about this week. If God values them just for being his unique creations, you and I should do the same. 
And in those ways where we can honor them, where we can celebrate them, where we can affirm them, pray for them, we shouldn't hesitate to do that. The second thing, and this is one that I'm really thankful we're kind of opening back up. I love seeing all the full faces. I know we say that now. We've said it for the last couple of weeks because there are faces I've only seen eyes of and, you know, I, I like all of you. Suggestion two, use your home. And I would encourage you, especially your dining room table as a hospitality hub for ministry. If we are going to feast in heaven, we should get familiar with it here on earth. And who better to feast with than those we know we'll celebrate with in heaven or those we long to see in heaven so we can feast with them as well. And the third thing, and this is probably the most practical one, those of you who are here this morning, as you walk out, look around. All of this doesn't happen just magically. I saw Lee Smith this morning as I walked in, sweaty, like difference maker shirt on, because he was getting after it. I see the AV team setting things up, making sure the band sounds great, which they always do. We see our kids' ministry being set up. There are teams that help set up where you and I gather to worship together. They help set up a place for our kids' ministry to point our children and the next generation to Jesus, and they make sure everything goes off without a hitch. If you're here this morning, if you're watching this morning, and you're thinking about coming back in person, and you're looking for a way to get plugged in, there are plenty of options here at Fellowship Nashville. None of them may seem very flashy to you, but I wholeheartedly believe this that serving in those areas is an act of faithful obedience to the King who saved us, as well as a loving, humble service to anyone who enters these walls each week. Remember that because of Jesus Christ, the gospel that has come to us is meant to flow through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about Christ's example before us, as we think about the many ways with which he has loved us so well. My prayer for each and every person here in this room this morning, each and every person watching online, is that your spirit would convict us and challenge us of those areas where we need to seek Jesus and serve others. Because if we are a served people, Lord, we are called to serve others. And we should do that gladly, humbly, and joyfully. Thank you for Jesus and his example, because without it, there was no hope for us. And with it, there is immense and eternal joy waiting for us. We ask all this in his name. Amen.